Today on the show, we got Chris Woods, and I gotta say, this one is a audible masterpiece. You're absolutely gonna love it. Chris and I played uh, lacrosse with each other in high school, won a state championship, no big deal. He went on to be an Army Ranger. I do a whole intro. He's a great guy. He's got buckets of wisdom for college athletes. So tune in to Chris. Let's do this. You're listening to the Well Played Podcast. True stories of successful people, who they are, and how they arrived. The bottom line is I hit the ground going a little bit faster than I probably should have been. Um, How fast would you think? Around 100 miles an hour, a little less. Um, You know, while we built a business that's already scaled outside of college sports and even sports in general, the athlete is really at the center of what we do. And so the schools who bought into it early on put the student athlete first. I don't know. It's just interesting. I like listening to it. Honestly, I had no idea. No, I'm just happy that you're telling me now. Here. And it's just you and me. Nobody is listening. Trust me. All right, let's do this. Right today on the Well Played Podcast is someone who embodies the title of our show. What does that mean? It means our guests made incredible decisions and sacrifices, an elite level of success and admiration among his peers. I met our guest in 1996. That was 23 years ago. Okay, and so just to put that into a little bit of perspective, this was the same year that Oprah Winfrey launched her book club, Tupac was shot down in Vegas, supposedly. I know the jury's still out on that one. And Independence Day beat out the nutty professor in the box office, all right? Three years later in 1999, I had the pleasure to play on the same team as our guest that won a Connecticut lacrosse state championship. Blue White to the top. He was captain of that team. After high school, our guest opted to attend the Army. I remember our high school principal awarding him as, an, as the entire school applauded his decision and sacrificed to serve his country. And while in the Army, he continued to play four years of Division I lacrosse, his senior year becoming captain of his team. No surprise there. The guy's a natural leader. And then after graduating college, he became an Army Ranger. And in 2003, at the very height of what the hell is actually happening in the Middle East, he was deployed as a platoon leader where he supervised, trained, and led coalition force soldiers, Arabic translators and interpreters, Iraqi police, Iraqi army personnel on patrols, spanning across the greater Baghdad area of operation, ultimately detaining dozens of insurgents and locating over 60 IEDs. I can't imagine doing that. In that, in the year he spent deployed in Iraq. After two years, he was promoted to executive officer where he commanded and controlled 93 soldiers and managed 50 million worth of equipment during combat operations in and around the Baghdad area. Uh, he was awarded the Bronze Star and Combat Action Badge for Leadership Under Fire. Yep, he's pretty much an American badass. And after his time in the Army, our guest took uh, sorry, took a job with in, in, took a job as investor relations and business development at Blackstone Group, one of the world's largest investment firms. He was there for seven years before deciding to leave and said, "You know what? I'm going to be a chief operating officer at Yoga Vida, a New York-based yoga company with five locations and over 140 employees. He led growth strategy, overall operations." And today he's actually transitioning again. And, and we're going to, and when I say transitioning, I'm not talking about gender. I'm talking about his next career venture. 
I'm excited to talk to him about that and a whole lot more. My guest, Chief Badass, Chris Woods. Welcome to the show. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Ryan. Um, I guess for the record, um, if I can back up uh, a few steps, I would uh, put my money on Nutty Professor over Independence Day any day of the week. But uh, other than that, that all, all, all sounds great. Thanks for the, uh, the warm intro there, buddy. Yeah. How does it sound to have someone read your life highlights back to you? Uh, I, and this can probably play into a lot of what we're going to talk about today, but, uh, you know, I'm not the kind of person that is very good about talking about themselves, um, which doesn't bode well for the interview process. Um, but at the same time, it's one of those things that, you know, one of my good friends and, 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 uh, and also another, another badass once told me that it's hard to be humble when you're as great as I am. And I always <laughs> took that as, <laughs> you know. There's, there's, there's those that are very, very good about talk and, 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 and talented when they come, when it comes to talking about themselves. And there's those that, you know, like to fly a little bit under the radar and, you know, I kind of, I kind of, uh, align with the latter and it's, uh, so to have it read back to me, it's, it's always kind of a uh, humbling experience, but it's kind of funny to think about the different lives I've lived over the last 20 something years. Well, you know, you hear this all the time and it's, you, you have been very accomplished and, I think it's important what, you know, so often, so many times we're thinking about what I got to do next, what I want, what I need, what, what life would be like if I could achieve X, Y, or Z. And uh, it's important to, to, to take a moment, especially at our age, what, I think we're both 37 years old, roughly, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, be happy with what, what we've accomplished. And even if that doesn't mean millions of dollars. I, I mean, there's, there's uh there's there's something nice about uh, you know looking back and, and seeing the, what you've impacted and, and you know and I skipped over some of the things that were in your profiles like this will be a thirty minute intro if I if I talk about everything um, <laughs> but no <laughs> kudos to you um, but I know it didn't all come easy I know that there was sacrifices along the way and you know I remember one time after you left the uh, the army where you were in transition, um, of what, what am I going to do next? Um, do you remember that time when we went camping and you were, you, you, you hadn't secured a job yet and you were on the job hunt for a little while, which is amazing to me that somebody who has, was as accomplished as you were. I mean, probably at the age of 22, 23, you had 93, uh, you know, elite soldiers reporting into you and managing $50 million in, in equipment. And, and here you are out of the army now and couldn't really find what the next move. Well, talk to me a little bit about what you remember from that time. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a, that's a, a, a certainly one of those periods in my life where there was a, 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 a great amount of uncertainty. Right. And I think, you know, you spoke to it before. It's really important to, to, you know, you can obviously have goals and ambitions about what you want and where you want to be and, you know, what you want to make and all these other things. But it's also important to kind of live, and be mindful that to stay in the moment. Um, so, you know, coming out of a, a, a very successful military career and, you know, West Point and all this other stuff that kind of pads your stats and looks like looks really sexy on a resume, you know, you, you all of a sudden find yourself out there on the job hunt and, you know, on the quote unquote unemployment line, figuring out kind of what that next step is. And it really does. It's, it's a humbling experience. And it's one that kind of levels the, the proverbial playing field a little bit. 
Um, what do I remember from that time? I remember being really uncertain. Um, you know, there was a number of things kind of in the hopper that were cooking and, and trying to figure out what, um, you know, what is next for me? What is, how does, how does something like the military set you up for success uh, on the, on the opposite side in the business world? And, you know, for me, obviously, you know, management and leadership and all those other key words that are very applicable to, to athletes across any, any sport or any, or any, um, you know, industry, it's, it's very tough to be like, okay, now my next step is X. Um, I know that I'm going to be successful because, you know, I'm, I'm perfectly set up for success and nothing, nothing really translates like, you know, perfectly. So for me, it was, it was more about trying to really dig in on what I wanted from a, from a career and less about what was out there. Um, so for me, it was, you know, more of an exploratory exercise and one that, you know, it took me a little bit and it took me a little while to kind of figure out what that, where, where that next home was going to be. Um, but was, was very fortunate to have some really incredible, um, and we're probably going to talk more and more about this. I'm sure is, is utilizing my, my personal network and the network of my university and the network of, of, of friends and family to kind of start to circle those wagons around what that looked like. Um, you know, and getting advice from a lot of people, um, both in and out of my network, so, people that were just really Let me interject there. Okay, so I, I think that's such a key thing that, uh, well, there's, there's two pieces I want to talk about. One is the identity piece, the, the, the changing of identity, the, the uh, kind of they're signing the retirement letter of being in the Army or being an athlete and realizing that now you have to focus on the next step. And the other part of that is the preparation. Athletes in college, and, and I bring it back to athletes, and I think that this is also applicable to, to veterans, but you, while you're in the game, while you're in school, start to build the network. And, and the best way to do that is to identify with people that you think might be of interest or people that you're connected to and simply ask them a quick, short, binary question. Well, binary question is one that has one or two, it has, I'm sorry, has two responses, right? Encourage the dialogue. Don't be lengthy in your response. So this is just an advice piece for any athletes that are listening about how do I build that network so that when I am done, um, I have people that I can start to you know, nurture the, this dialogue and the relationship with. What advice would you give to somebody coming out of either the armed forces or a college athlete coming out of school who's maybe not going into uh, to the services? But what advice do you have for them in terms of helping figure out what their true identity is and, and, and what advice do you have for them to, of kind of moving on to their next phase of their life? I think the biggest thing is, is the, the cultivation of your personal network. And you're going to be introduced to a million people over the course of your, of your four years in college or beyond, whether you're a college athlete or, or in the military or kind of obviously, you know, your, your network is going to be vast. Don't ever discount someone from your network. You want to treat them like you're like you're growing a plant. You know, you're constantly watering. You're constantly, you know, even if even if it's just a once a month or once every couple months type of a thing, a little outreach to keep those conversations and those relationships, you know, watered and fruitful is 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 pivotal. You'll never know. You will never know when someone in your background or in your network or in your friend's network who you've been introduced to will be helpful to you. So the more that you can be, you know constantly feeding and cultivating those relationships, the better off you're going to be. The, the bottom line to the way that I ended up finding my job was through 
a friend of a friend who was networked with someone who, you know, so it was literally like six degrees of separation between me and the, the, the person that I got put in touch with. But it was through constant outreach and constant, you know, the constant feeding of these relationships that those things come to fruition. So that's the, the, the utmost of importance to me is, is making sure that, that, that your network knows that, one, you're, you're obviously a value-additive piece to their network as well. But also, but also being being someone that they want to keep in touch with, and that you want, making sure they know that they're on your radar as someone that you want to be in touch with, and 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 maintain that relationship with. Talk to me about the transition into Blackstone Group. Uh, you were again, your title was investor relations, business development. When you first came in, you were probably not managing. What advice can you give to athletes or veterans? going into their first 90 days and also just talk a little bit about what your role was for someone that may want to follow into your footsteps. I think that the, the most important piece to, to any transition, whether it be from college to the professional world or from the military out um, or from, you know, laterally from, from business to business is that you're going to enter in and have to be, you know, not the lowest man on the totem pole, but you probably will, have to learn things from the ground up. So it's really important. And I think it's actually a pivotal piece to just kind of growth as a, as a person and as a professional to have that experience of kind of going from the top to the, to the, to the middle or to the bottom and, and having to learn something from, from, from the, from the ground up. And so joining Blackstone, obviously the world's one of the world's leading asset managers and, 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 a, and a true kind of leader and thought leader in the space Coming from the military, where the business acumen obviously does not match up with, with with your leadership acumen, I had to you know learn both the technical and 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 the cerebral side of, of the business from the from from literally from the ground. So it was uh, it was humbling to say the least, um, but also really exciting for me. I thought that was a, a really a, kind of a leadership challenge is, is what we kind of call that in the military. In, in that you kind of have to take a step back and realize kind of where you fall and where you are in your, in your life. Um, but I found it to be really invigorating, uh, being around really smart people. And, you know, they always say, and, and everyone kind of echoes it, that, you know, you never want to be the smartest person in the room. Surround yourself with people that are smarter than you. You know, that's, where you, that's how you actually find success. Uh, I can tell you firsthand that that is absolutely what I did when I joined Blackstone. Um, I found myself in a room around people that, had been doing this and doing, I was on the hedge fund side of Blackstone, obviously. And, um, and well, so not people for have, anybody that, what does that mean for, for the younger viewers or someone who may not be familiar with the space? Cause it was buy and sell side. And what, what, what would that mean being on the hedge fund, hedge so, fund side? So, for you so we're on the, we're on the hedge fund side and it's technically a fund of hedge funds. So what Blackstone's asset management and, and fund of um, alternative asset management group does is, kind of uh, group together underlying managers or hedge funds um, into different portfolios or different funds that we kind of create our own funds utilizing an underlying uh, hedge fund. So, you know, underneath Blackstone would be, you know, a series of dozens and dozens and dozens of other direct, direct uh, investing hedge funds. So we would diligence those hedge funds, bucket them together into certain portfolios, whether they be a bespoke product for a for a high tiered client, i.e. they're investing upwards of 50 plus million dollars, then we'll do something that's customized to them. Otherwise you can pick something that's off the shelf. So you go into a, you know, a grocery store and you want to buy, you know, this box of cereal. Okay, great. 
that's our, you know, that's our, you know, our, our partner's portfolio. Um, so you have, you know, very different ways of investing. Obviously, the more customized you get, the more you can kind of really refine what you're looking for, which is more, you know, you can, you can kind of tweak the risk mitigation. You can figure out different asset allocation. You can kind of, so you can kind of play with the, the different buckets of how you're going to invest. So, um, so it's, it's a very, uh, a diligence heavy, um, uh, organization. So you're obviously constantly on the, on the offense trying to figure out who is the best in breed and, and where they fit into your overall portfolio and mix. What I did there was more on the investor servicing, investor relations and operational side. So client facing, but in, so servicing about 3 billion of our AUM, uh, fell under me and my team, um, or a little bit more. When you actually. say AUM, um, what, what, explain what that means. That's your assets under management. So when I joined the hedge fund side of Blackstone, we were about $21.5 billion under management, meaning that our clientele have $21.5 billion that we manage for them. So across hundreds of clients, we were managing you know, $21.5 billion. I was there for about seven years. When I left Black, the alternative side of Blackstone, we were just under 80, so about $79.5 billion wow. under management. So was there through a tremendous period of growth and scale and and one that was uh, really fruitful for me to see the inner workings of a global operation uh, and how that scale works from the inside out. And one of the things that I, I when I look at your experience um, on LinkedIn, and by the way, anybody listening to this, if you want to follow Chris on LinkedIn, it's Christopher Woods. And if you put in uh, Army Blackstone, I'm sure he'll pop up in your search. Uh, one of the things that I would like to touch on is, so you, you saw uh, client growth while you were there. Um, and it looks as though you were part of a team to help implement a new CRM firm-wide. Now, anybody going into sales, operations, any kind of client management, if you're going into marketing and you have to do you know, client management or email sequencing, you, you, usually CRM is at the heart of that. It's how you organize your clients. Chris, take a second to tell us a little bit about uh, what a CRM uh, is and, and also kind of what, a, what uh, strategies or tactics uh, you think are most important when setting up a CRM internally, be it a small shop or a large company. Yeah, I mean, just by nature of the, of the title, right? It's a relationship management tool. It's one that we utilize to you know, organize our thoughts, organize everything from notes on the last meeting to when you want to follow up to who the key players are. You know, there's a, you, can, you, you, can, you can customize these things these days, you know, through Salesforce or, or, or whoever else on the street who, who, who offers this. And there's a number of them that, that, we, that we diligence on in the process. But, um, you know, this was something that across, you know, this, we wanted something that was firm-wide, so not just the hedge fund side of Blackstone, but also, you know, obviously there's different verticals that, that play into this from private equity to real estate to credit to, to private wealth. Um, obviously, there's certain walls between those for, for confidentiality reasons, um, So, so and especially because of the increasing regulatory demand on, on any kind of asset management firm. Um, you know, we had to be really, really careful about not crossing those boundaries and putting yourself at risk of, of you know, violating any, any compliance um, regulatory issues. So this was one that, you know, took us, you know, the better part of a year and, and Blackstone's technology team um, and innovations team kind of took the lead. Um, but from the hedge fund side, you know, we were, because I sat in the seat of investor relations and investor servicing, 
you know, I was in a unique position to figure out kind of how we wanted to customize this to, to best suit what we were kind of, uh, what we were doing. Um, so, you know, this was something that from a large shop or small shop perspective just is the, the go-to tool, um, to kind of manage all of those relationships. And when you're talking about someone like Blackstone, those relationships are vast, right? There's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, of relationships that you're managing, some of which are clients, some of which are prospects, some of which are not even on the radar yet, but you're kind of thinking about them. Um, so, you know, there's a lot that goes into that. And um, I, I will so say that, that we, it, go ahead. Go ahead. I did. Well, I was going to say, you know, if, again, if you're an athlete listening to this or you're a veteran that's coming out, you think that you want to go into sales, uh, take some time prior to going on an interview and just start to research uh, CRMs, look at Salesforce, just understand basic flow and how they work because your first 90 days as a sales professional um, will be a lot smoother if you have a general understanding of, of how tagging and uh, working through a CR, CRM system works. I'd, I'd love to switch gears uh, to a time in 2016 this was as you were leaving, well, you were with Blackstone and I met you and your wife for dinner in the city. And I think there was one other high school friend in there and you showed up, you were in a very nice looking suit. We had a great evening. Uh, and then a few months later, you had made the transition to uh, being a partner, chief operating officer at Yoga Vida. Uh, I had met you again in the city a few months later now this time. And you had a beard. You, you showed up on a bike. You, you were it was a whole different vibe. Uh, talk to me a little bit about the, that transition and what what it was like uh, for you um, and your family. Yeah, of course. Uh, I mean, look, Blackstone is is like we've said a number of times, just a, a world leader when it comes to one thought leadership, two the type of people they employ, and three what they actually do, which is which is you know, asset management. Um, and it's one of those places that I think really honed me as an individual, as a professional. And I was fortunate enough to learn a lot about the inner workings of, of what scale looks like. And, you know, for me, um, you know, I had this, this kind of burning uh, desire to scratch the, the entrepreneurial itch. And it was something that I thought at the, at the seven to seven and a half year market Blackstone I had extracted kind of the value that I needed from that organization to to go out and, and really kind of try my hand at at operating an organization, one that was ready for scale but wasn't quite there yet, and one that you know I could help influence things like culture and 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 growth and personnel and obviously you know increase margins, revenue, and and, and look at scaling a business. So I left in uh, in early 2016, um, and yeah, took took that opportunity to you know went from working 14 hours a day behind a desk in an office setting to, you know, still working 14 hours a day, but in much different, uh, in a much different capacity. Um, you know, my wife always says that, you know, yes, I grew my beard and I was riding a bike around the city and was, you know, playing that game of the entrepreneurial uh, side, but also, you know, my, my hours and the way in which I was operating, um, were just a little bit more, uh, outside the box and not as, not as cut and dry um, as working in an office setting, which for me really spoke to kind of the way that I operate and the way that I work. Um, I think I work better when I'm a little bit more autonomous and can kind of be my own professional and, and work when I know I have to work. Um, right. So it was a great, great transition for me and my family. One that had me, you know, I was a, I was a little much more available parent to my young children 
Um, but yeah, I mean, any, any job, especially when you, when you run at a fast pace and take a lot of pride in your work is going to be extremely and, and increasingly time consuming. Um, which, you know, that's kind of the nature of, of that beast and much like athletics. I mean, you, if you want to be the best at your craft and you want to be an excel on the field and, and, you know, you want to be the best. So that takes time and that takes effort and that takes dedication. And, you know, for me, again, just like I did at Blackstone, it took a lot, the ramp up period, like the transition from the military to an asset management firm was, 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 you know, I drank from the, from that fire hose once, once again. So I had to learn the boutique fitness market and the wellness market in a, in a, in a inside and out and, and really kind of do my diligence on what I was up against and how this scale was really going to happen. So, you know, it took a lot of work, a lot of effort. And, you know, I don't know if that beard was because I was trying to grow it or because I didn't have time to shave, frankly. <laughs> Bouncing back to Blackstone, I think in the latter years and while you were there, um, you had a, a, a very interesting experience that I hope you can kind of walk us through. And I know this is probably something that's tough for you to talk about because you don't like talking about yourself, but I believe that you took a, uh, a helicopter to meet the president, you and your wife. Talk, talk us through a little bit about what that was and, uh, you know, just, just explain the day. Um, yeah. So, you know, there was a, a period, you know, at the, at the three or four year market at Blackstone where, Again, I kind of had that 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 itch to scratch where I kind of wanted to do something a little bit more. And all my friends, you know, were were a lot of have a lot of friends that work in in, in the financial world, and they were constantly be peppering me with with Hey, we're um, I'm, I'm working on this cool initiative. We're doing some hiring stuff for veterans and this and that. And I'm like, you know, what, what what's going on here? Why why is there no? You know, I looked through Blackstone's uh, website and found that there was you know there was probably I was one of I was the only veteran of the Iraq and, and Afghanistan war era at that time. We had one or two others from, from, you know, the, the late nineties or mid nineties, something like that. Um, so I, so I kind of started to kind of percolate this idea of a, of a military internship program. And was one of those things that, you know, I started talking to some folks and they're like, God, I love that. It's great. And obviously Blackstone's not from, from an assets under management perspective, they're massive, but from an infrastructure perspective, it's only 2000 people globally. So not at the same scale from a, from a, from a personnel perspective as a, as a Goldman or a UBS or a Citibank or, right. you know, all these other who have, who have robust programs. So this was going to be very much more of a spoke process for very unique candidates coming out of, coming out of the military. With that, um, you know, I, I got the ear of, of the CEO and, and, and president and Steve Schwarzman, and he loved the idea, and it started to kind of gain some momentum. In that process, he had invited me to to D.C. to meet uh, the president, the first lady, um, the, the vice president, obviously, and, and, and his wife, uh, Dr. Biden, to kick off Wait, what, what they were launching with the Let's unpack that? that for a second. Let's unpack that for a second. You and your wife go into the city from Connecticut. You you, you take a what, what, how do you get there? We we were living in the city at the time. Uh, oh, okay, so we you were, were living in the city. Middle. Yep. And you're going to Washington uh, D.C. How did you get How did you get there? We had a, a car that came in and picked us up at at our apartment on the Upper West Side and brought us to the. The West Side helipad to meet Steve at his uh, at his at, the, <laughs> at his at his helicopter and no big uh, deal no him, big deal <laughs> yeah just another day in the office um, yeah. <laughs> and his helicopter brought us to Teterboro which is a you know an airport um, where most what people you, who what fly private fly what from the conversation what are you thinking what is the conversation like while you're in the helicopter with Steven Schwartzman. 
Um, you know, that was my, you know, I had, a, I'd had a couple conversations with him over the, over the, my period there. So this was not like the first time I'd met him and he's actually right. a very gracious and very, and very approachable person, obviously extremely analytical, um, and you know, uh, just a little bit successful. Um, so, so yeah, the conversation was actually around my military background and, you know, he had been a reserve, uh, a reservist, uh, back in the, back in the day. So he kind of touched on his, uh, experience in the military as well. Um, kind of very different from mine, but, but again, he did have some, some experience. I wanted to kind of chat about that. We talked about the current state of the markets and, and kind of what my job was in, in the asset management business. And, you know, how did I like that? And he was, you know, very, um, inquisitive, uh, which I think you get from someone at that, at that point in their career, really wanted to kind of get a gauge on the inner workings of the organization and, you know, at someone who's at the, you know, middle level management position at that point in my life. Um, yeah. So he was, he was very much probing about kind of the, the inner workings of, of BAM, the alternative asset management business at Blackstone, um, and kind of how, how I liked, who I worked for, how did I like their management style. I mean, he was, he was very inquisitive and, and, and very, uh, you know, had, had a lot of, of questions that he, that he was, you know, inquiring about, which was, one, a little bit stressful because you obviously, you know, that you're talking to the man that makes every major decision at the firm. Um, but also one that was, you know, I found to be incredibly uh, gracious of him and, and very you know, comforting that he would actually care about more than just making money, but about the culture of the firm and about kind of how I like right. the inner workings of the firm as well, which I thought was a great life lesson to, to anyone out there who's, you know, running an organization, whether it be a, a you know, a, a small shop or a big shop, you know, I took a lot of those lessons with me when I'm now that I'm operating a, a small, you know, organization. So, Chris. Um, you, yeah, you 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 are very gracious and you are very bashful. Uh, anybody listening to this right now, just just imagine yourself. It's one thing to get FaceTime with the with the head guy of the company. I'm thinking, you know, anybody that and I've been in, I've you know, worked for J.P. Morgan Chase, and just to get get time with a managing director, you're like, oh, I'm in their office, and it's one thing to have FaceTime with the boss. It's another thing to uh, have a private conversation while in the uh, chopper as you go to meet the president of the United States. Like I, I just, man, that is, that is one of those experiences that I, that I hope that uh, you, you, you cherish forever and, and tell your kids and grandkids about, cause that's a, that's a unique time, but okay. Wheels on the ground. What happens next? You're in DC. Uh, so we took, yes, we took his jet to the helicopter, the jet and his jet to DC. So from, to put into perspective, from start to finish, we started off on our apartment on the Upper West Side. We were in D.C. in the White House meeting the president within, I want to say, maybe two to two and a half hours max. Um, <laughs> so amazing. Yeah, I just put, yeah, you wouldn't even be, you wouldn't even be through TSA at, at LaGuardia yet. Um, so, so we were, you know, meeting. So we had a nice sit down and, and meet and greet with the first lady, who was, you know, obviously. She speaks for herself. Michelle Obama is probably the most gracious person, um, especially in, in, in a position of power that I've ever met in my life. Um, and she wow. you know, wanted to know about what we were doing and how we were doing it with, with veteran hiring. And obviously, at this point, this, this stage of the life cycle of the military internship program that I'm starting at Blackstone, it was very, it was still only in idea phase. So we kind of were right. falling about that. And, um, but we got to kind of sit through the uh, the press conference in the West Wing that uh, where they kicked off the Joining Forces Initiative, which was an initiative that Michelle Obama kind of uh, initiated on her own, which was a, a hiring initiative for veterans coming out of the military. Um, because as we know, that's as we spoke about, that's not an easy transition. And you know, 
obviously I'm extremely fortunate to and lucky to to land at Blackstone. Not everyone is that fortunate and lucky. So, you know, how do we kind of help that that process along? Um, so, you know, we did that and had a nice lunch with with the with you know all the members of of the White House and and um, you know got our picture taken. And Steve was gracious enough to call me to his office the week the next week and uh, and hand deliver or hand hand, hand carry a, uh, a a picture in a Tiffany's. Uh, um, uh, uh, frame uh, of myself and my wife and and him and and Michelle and and Dr. Biden and a few others, um, so that adorns our our living room and that's, so that there's our keepsake from the uh, from the experience. Nice, that is so cool. Yeah. All right, can we? It was fun. <laughs> I want to keep talking to you about. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. Should put the call. I see that in radio they would push the cough button and uh, we would we would be good, but. Here, we'll just probably try to edit that out. Um, I want to talk to you. Uh, I want to get in a little bit of your into the charitable organizations. And I also want to talk to you about uh, um, what it's like as an experienced uh, professional now, you know, going through the, the work transition. But can we can we talk real quickly about some fun stuff? Because I, I told you I wanted to ask you this. And I, <laughs> I know you think it's probably not that relevant, but... I just think it's cool. I mean, you had, I'm sure you had a, a few near-death experiences, but one in particular was a c- celebratory jump. I think that your father came to to view. Uh, w- walk us through that. This is a fun story that I think everybody will enjoy listening to. I, I mean, I would say fun is a very relative term. Maybe fun to hear it. Um, but, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I was on, on a, a, training, a training jump. We're, I'm airborne qualified, and we we're jumping out of an airplane to onto a you know it was a it was a nighttime jump onto a dark LZ landing zone, so one that you can't really see what you're doing, and you may or may not hit a tree. Uh, but jumping in the military is very different than you think of skydiving. Um, it's static line, meaning when you jump out of the plane, your parachute automatically deploys, um, i.e., static. Hopefully, so it's not so it's not dynamic. Um, so you don't pull your own chute, um, and Obviously, the risers, what you'd use to control your movement in the air going left or right, is very different than skydiving, where it's not like one little lever that you pull and you go left. It's You have to grab them all, all 50 to 100 risers, and pull them to the left or right to go. Um, so it's called slipping left and right, and so it's not an easy thing to do. It's kind of a, a real pain to move, maneuver your, your chute in the military. Um, and we were, uh, you know, like I said, on a training jump, and, and you know, somehow, way, shape, or form, I was... I got caught up with another jumper in the air and uh, caused my parachute to lose its air. And I had to, you know, obviously pull the reserve and, it, it, you know, was not an, an, a, a fun experience, one that probably still makes my armpits sweat a little bit. Um, and so Do you remember what's going through your head in this, in this moment? Like once you realize that you're, you're, Oh shit! I'm in trouble. What, what are you thinking? It, yeah, but at that point, it's more of a you know you, you, you're it's not even like an it's not even the no shit moment. It's more of a like okay, you've been trained so well at what 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 are your mitigation tactics in terms of if if X Y Z goes wrong? Here's my one two step process. I mean, it's, it all happens very quickly. You're not in the air very long. They're all low low flying jumps. Um, so you're not. You know, you're not thousands and thousands of feet off the ground. Um, you're more like a couple thousand. Um, so at this point, it's like, you know, make the decision, knock it out, and, and keep going. So, you know, 
it, the bottom line is I hit the ground going a little bit faster than I probably should have been. Um, How fast would faster, you think? I mean, uh, probably around 100 miles an hour, a little less. Um, and yeah, so, you know, and like I said, it was a nighttime jump. So it, it, it was, you know, couldn't even, really, couldn't even see where the ground was really. You're looking at the horizon line to kind of gauge. Um, so hit the ground. Were you unconscious when you hit the ground? No, no. I, I was fully conscious when I heard my leg break. Um, Lord. Was there anybody near you? Um, because um, the way in which static jump operates is that as you file out of the plane, your shoot, shoot opens, it naturally creates that distance so that you don't hit people. Unfortunately, right. I was someone slipped, slipped into me. Um, so meaning they were, they were maneuvering their parachute the wrong way, essentially. Um, but it was dark, so you can't really fault someone. It's really hard. You don't see anything. It's really, really dark. Um, so I hit the ground, broke my kid fib, which is basically everything in your ankle. Um, and again, because it was a nighttime jump, it was one of those things where <laughs> it's not really easy to find people. So it took a little while. Um, so I hadn't. So, so hold on. Moved, you're fully so. you're fully conscious at this point on the ground, obviously in a hell of a lot yeah. of pain. Training probably kicks in. You know, this is a perfect example of like, what do you do when something goes wrong, and how do you stay positive? How, how did you get yourself? found and into a place where the you know doctors could be working on you. Well, I was lucky enough that, you know, it only took a little bit of time for me to get out. Like I was able to, to yell and, and someone was able to hear me and tell them that I was injured and I needed some help. It took a little while for them to get assistance to me. So I was probably there on the LZ for, or the drop zone, I should say for, you know, probably, you know, 30 to 40 minutes, uh, waiting for a Humvee to come grab me. Um, so I, you know, elevated my foot, made sure it was above my heart, started to kind of triage myself, if you will. At that point, you know, there's nothing you can ask. There's absolutely nothing you can do. It's actually, it sounds horrible, but it didn't really hurt at that point. I think, I think it was more of a shock, uh, at that point that, you know, my foot's kind of dangling off my leg and, you know, that was the first real serious injury that I'd ever really had. I mean, I've been hurt and broken fingers and noses and stuff playing lacrosse in, in, at West Point, but, you know, never never a real hard break like this. And so, I, you know, in my head, it was like, oh, like, it was, I was more worried about what my what my rehab was going to be and not being able to do all right. the stuff that I like to do, which is, you know, skiing and running and biking and all that kind of stuff. So it was more Will like I walk again. Little, yeah, it was more like, I hope I can still do those things when I'm healed. Um, but yeah, so then got to the hospital probably about two ish hours after, after actually breaking the, the bones and, and yeah, had, had reconstructive surgery and, you know, still have a uh, couple plates and, you know, I don't know, about a dozen screws still kind of in there and, you know, healed up fine. I ran a marathon within, within uh, eight months of, uh, of breaking it. So I think I'm good to go. Good Lord. <laughs> yes. All right. Uh, that's, that's, I'm glad that we told that fun, fun, fun story. Uh, and I'm glad that you're that okay. Was cer- you're certainly able. a lot of, certainly a lot of fun. Thanks for, thanks for rehashing that, Ryan. I just, I just got a new way. <laughs> you, you almost also got bit by a rattlesnake. Tell us that story. Oh, that was at Ranger School. Yeah. So Ranger School is a 62 day course that you, you go through uh, a, a, it's a leadership school. It's probably one of the preeminent ones in the military these days, kind of like going through buds for SEALs and that kind of thing. Um, and, and, you know, I was in the swamps in Florida and 
kind of going through the last phase and at that point I'm down like 30 pounds and you know you're basically like a zombie because you're not eating or, or sleeping much and so I'm like wandering through the swamps at night on a patrol and it was the middle of the night and I have my, you know, my headlamp on and I'm kind of doing my thing. And I was in a leadership role at the time, meaning I was in charge of the next operation. And I have a map in front of my face, kind of walking slowly, trying to figure out where we're going because you get lost and you're kind of screwed in the middle of the swamp. And I just hear a slow rattle and I'm like, that's not right. So move the map, look down. And there's a, a monster, um, Eastern diamondback rattlesnake at my feet. I mean, a monster. Um, bigger than I'd ever seen. And, and uh, so obviously I back away from it slowly. Luckily I approached it in the middle of the night. So I'd woken it up um, and I didn't step on it. So it just kind of, it startled it, but didn't startle it to the point where it actually struck. Um, I went and got some of the RIs, the ranger instructors and said, you know, I think I just found a beast out here. You guys should come check it out. And they actually went out and caught it and brought it back to the HQ. Um, and they said it was uh, of it was one of the largest they'd ever seen in a swamp. Um, so luckily, you, I had, one I of the trainers training. pulled you aside. Didn't he pull you aside after training? And, and what did he say to you? He just said, "You're you're very lucky. That was one of the biggest ones we've ever found, uh, if not the biggest. And if that had struck you with the size, it was probably, you know, the, the circumference was, you know, it was, you know, bigger than your arm, bigger than your, but it was the kind of the size of your thigh." Uh, he said, if that had struck you, it not only would the, the venom have been intense and may, may likely have killed you, that would have, um, or could have killed you, probably, you know, who knows. But it also, because of where it would have struck you, it would have hit your leg, it probably would have shattered your leg. That's how big it was. Good Lord. Okay. We're bringing up all the, all the <laughs> scary stuff that I'm going to dream about tonight. Thanks, Ryan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Post-traumatic syndrome, just coming back at you. Um, no problem. Okay. Let, let, let's transition back real quick. And I know i got to be conscious of time here. We're at the 45-minute mark. But I, there, there's two other things I want to hit here. You, 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 were, uh, you, you wrapped up your time at Yoga Vida. And, you, and I, I was, unlike it, you know, you're, you're in transition now. And unlike the time when we went camping, um, you know, after your time in the, in, in the Army, now you're – you're well accomplished, you're sought after, but you still are. And by the time that this hits the air, you will probably have accepted an offer because I know you and I've been talking and there's a number of companies that uh, are very much interested in having you join their firm in a leadership role. It's really exciting, mm-hmm. but it's, it's still a little nerve wracking to say the least. I mean, now you you have two kids, a wife, and a mortgage, whereas you didn't have those things when you got out of the army when, when we were talking. What advice can you give the, you know, 35 to 45-year-old who has had their first or second act in their professional career and then now are making, looking to make that transition? Like, how, how have you gone about it? What kind of tactics can you offer to the per- seasoned professional, hopefully the seasoned athlete or veteran that's listening to this? Yeah. I mean, I think if my background speaks to anything, it's, it's that I'm, I'm, I'm fairly kind of methodical and analytical in my process. Um, the, the one thing that I really, I took to heart in this, in this phase of, of doing this was, you know, I wanted to be very diligent in my efforts and, and not leave any stones unturned. So 
What does that mean for me? That means that much like I did from day one from leaving the military and much like I would advise athletes to do is I went immediately to my network. Uh, I started talking to people and not like firing my resume off and being like, hey, I'm looking for a job. It was more like, hey, let's have a drink or let's have a coffee and let's go chat. And I went to, and so I did this with a number of folks that that I over the years have entrusted with with big decisions or, or, or have, have confided in with big decisions and people that I know have good networks and people that I know have a thoughtful approach to, to their professional lives. And so people that I consider my advisors or my confidants, um, and I kind of tap to them about, Hey, one, you know, I want to go about this in a much different way. You know, I think that at this stage of my life and in my career, I'm a little bit more in the driver's seat and less in the passenger in terms of what that next step is. You know, how would you go about one marketing yourself in, in the right way into the right people? And two, you know, who do you know that would be an, a, a, the next logical person to talk to? So I think this hits on one key piece that I want to touch on earlier that I didn't get a chance to, um, is when you do have this network that you're starting to tap into, you need to make sure that you're, you know, don't, it's not that you're holding them accountable, but you hold them actionable. So when you meet with people or you talk to people or you're expanding your network or you're just having these introductory calls, Go in with go in with a little bit of a plan. Don't just go in there and be like, "Oh, I'm just gonna have a conversation and hopefully it goes well, and then maybe I get an intro or two out of it. Who knows?" Like, go in there and be like, "You know, I respect you because you are X, Y, and Z, or you've done X, Y, and Z. You know, here's where I think you can be helpful to me. You know, put the onus on them to actually help you and give it something that's actionable. Hey, coming out of this conversation, I would really appreciate it if you had one to two to three introductions to me, one in this field, one in that field, or you know, has some kind of a plan. And I found that that is, it, I mean, coming out of the, the first 10 to 15 conversations that I had with my network, that's where 90% of my opportunities have come from. And I've been kind of chasing them down uh, and, so and kind of going through that process over the past, over the past month to month and a half. So it's been, it's been I, a, a, a whirlwind, but one that has been really fruitful. And I, this is a process that I probably over the course of the past month that I've been doing this and, and starting to really put myself out there. I honestly think I've grown my network probably five to 10 X. <laughs> right. Well, that's what happens in the times of transition. You, you connect with everybody. And I love that you said that having an, having an actual plan going into it and, and holding them accountable afterwards. Look, if, if you take care of your network throughout your twenties and thirties, your network will take care of you. And so absolutely that, that means you need to be kind of routine in helping your network, be it, making an introduction that has nothing to do with you. People will remember you. If the introduction is fruitful for both parties, giving people just general information based off of their industry, giving somebody a call when you think of them or a text, Hey, we're just thinking of you. How are you doing? How's that last project going? Those are the things that I don't think enough people do because that's your, I mean, I've, this is a, a, a phrase that's a little corny, but your network is your net worth at the end of the day. And there's going to be a time, most likely, that you're going to need to, to rely on that network. All of a sudden, the job's taken away from you, the venture's taken away from you, whatever it may be. And you need to be able to have that call, be able to have some multiple people take that meeting. And because they respect you, Chris, they, they took those meetings and now, all of a sudden, your opportunities exponentially grew. And the other thing, too, I would say to the, the you know, let's say the 35, 40, 45-year-old is following back up with that meeting. Uh, and, and if you've taken care of your network and you've taken care of that person, 
in the past, they're going to, you can, you can go to them and say, Hey, just wanted to follow up. Were you ever able to connect or can you, can you still shoot that intro email to Bob Smith on XYZ and they'll do it and they won't, they'll feel bad that they hadn't done it yet. And they won't think that you're being annoying if you do it the right way. Yeah. And I think it's also, you know, and I, I relate this very much to any relationship that you've been in. And, you know, I, for one, me and my wife, it's, it's, it is in every sense of the word, a two-way street. Um, you know, what have you done for me? What do I can, what can I do for you? You know, how, how, how am I helpful to you on a daily basis with these folks that I've reached out to? Yes. I had a very actionable plan going into these conversations, but I also wanted to make sure that it wasn't just me asking for things. So how can I help you? Like, what are you up to? Like, you know, maybe they're raising capital and they could use an introduction to someone, you know, a VC or a private equity firm who's looking to invest or a high net worth individual, or maybe they are looking at skis for their wife and they're not sure what to buy. You're like, oh, here, I'm going to send you a couple of links to a couple of skis that I found that were on sale or, you know, little ways to, to make sure that you're on their mind and that you're in some way, shape or form a value additive member of their network. You know, those little pieces that you touched on, it's pivotal. And I think, you know, and it's not, you know, it's not kitschy. It's not, it's not, you know, you don't do things just, just to get something from people. You want to actually be, you know, in every sense of the word, a friend, you know, Hey, what would my friends do for me in a situation when I needed them? You know, and not that I would reach out to them saying, I need you. It was more like, Hey, I know that you're tied into the right, right organizations, the right people. You know, I would just love to pick your brain. And if nothing comes from it, yep. no worries, no heart, no blood, no foul. I'm totally cool. But at the same time, if something does come from it, Sweet. Here's a bottle of bourbon. Thank you so much for your time. I hope to talk to you soon, you know, or, or let's get a drink yeah. soon. Something like that. You know, that's the so, kind of stuff that goes a long way. Chris, I am a guy who takes a lot of saunas every day. Mostly I try to get into the sauna and I find that I am have, but you I don't, have a but lot you don't, of career. But you don't, you don't, you don't, but you don't sweat, right? <laughs> <laughs> Profusely. Before I even get into the sauna, but when I'm in the sauna, I've been, I've, I find myself having a lot of career conversations and sometimes it's with, uh, maybe I seek them out because I'm a career guy. I'm an advocate for the candidate. I'm an advocate for college athletes, obviously, and professional athletes, but I've recently keep on running into the same gentleman who's a triathlete. He was a former police officer. He uh, was with the police officer force for 20 years. And now for the past three years, three, four years, he's been with a major fortune, one of the largest banks out there. And he's in uh, anti-money laundering AML. And he's like, I'm just ready to make a move. Now, this is somebody who's financially secure. He doesn't have a huge overhead. And um, the biggest thing that I'd say to that person, which can be anybody listening to this, is don't just take something for the money or you know, ignore some of the red flags, you have to go back through and take a variety of personality assessments and look at those, look at that, where you compliment and where you have conflicts from an environment perspective. And again, the athlete book offers two minute personality assessments to kick out a really good assessment. You need to, to look at those things in, in contrast to the opportunities and the job requirements that you're looking at, because there's nothing worse at this time of our lives when we are in the money-making uh, years of our lives to take something that's not going to provide you with fulfillment and happiness and be something that aligns perfectly with your personality. So if, if you can't find something in that space, you got to question like, where am I, where am I most happy? 
what type of what are my my strengths from a uh, personality perspective? If you're a creator, but you don't have the education and knowledge to create something, then you need to start taking courses. Um, so that's I just would I would I want to say that little last piece of advice. And now if we could transition into our final topic, Chris, you have a, a few like five more minutes with me. Whatever you need, Ryan, I'm here. I love that. See, because I worked my network. <laughs> That's right. Here's a bottle of bourbon. You, you yeah. <laughs> I'll send you a <laughs> bottle of bourbon. Uh, you're involved in, it looks like, seven charitable organizations. I'm going to read them off. Chairman of New York City Chapter for 1% for the planet. Can't wait to hear what that's about. Advisory Board Member for Seal Future Fund, SFF. Protect Our Winters, POW. Team Army Ranger, Lead the Way Fund. Uh, Team Red, White, and Blue, RWB. Wounded Warrior Project, uh, member as a wounded veteran alumni and as a volunteer, and Adaptive Sports Foundation. Uh, We have a few friends in common that that support that organizational effort. Um, It's awesome that you're involved in, in so many of these charitable efforts. I mean, if there's, I mean, I know you you can't pick favorites, obviously, but is there, there's anything um, currently happening with any of these uh, charitable organizations that uh, we could talk about and and have get people involved and excited about or or get uh, companies to start backing? Is there any one thing that's uh, happening these days that we can, that you can discuss with us? Yeah, I mean, there, there's a number of those that, you know, I'm actively involved in. And, and I think it, 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 it begs the question of why. Why be involved in all of this stuff when it's just when, – well, all this really does when you boil it down to brass tacks is take away from the time that you should be working, right? Like all this stuff takes time off of your plate, right? And you're not getting paid to do this. But I, I really do think that if you are – if you're in a position where you can help people, that you really should. And I, and I you know, I think maybe it's paying it forward. I think – Maybe I've been fortunate in my life to be afforded some things that, that you know, I, I consider myself to have lived a, a very privileged life. And, you know, I didn't grow up wealthy or anything, but I was given a very, very strong platform to succeed from day one, right? So, so not everyone has given those things, and some people have things taken away from them. So a number of these organizations revolve right around that. Um, obviously, a lot of them are veteran-heavy. Um, the one that I – the two – probably the two that I would touch on – as ones that I, that I, that I really kind of get behind in a, in a big way is, is protect our winters and, and, um, and the seal future fund. Um, so, so I was connected to protect our winters through 1% for the planet, which is the other one that I kind of also touch on. Um, I joined 1% for the planet as I, I had our, our company, Yoga Vita, um, joined 1% for the planet, which is an organization that was started by Patagonia founder, Yvonne Chouinard. Um, to basically start to circle the wagons around how to live more sustainably and to give back to just, it's, it's just that you give 1% of your gross revenue to the charities of your choice that they vet that have to do with sustainability more globally speaking. In that process, I was introduced to the founders of Protect Our Winters, uh, which is Jeremy Jones. He's a professional snowboarder, arguably the best snowboarder oh, in the yeah. world. So his, that's his organization. He started. Um, which organization was that? protect our winters. Got it. So they are a climate change advocate organization, uh, which I think is a a pretty hot topic these days for for obvious reasons in this political climate. 
Um, and it's one that, you know, I really do stand behind. And there's a number of, of reasons why, which we don't need to get into on the air, but just something that I really do buy into and, and that we've given a, a large amount of money and time and effort to them. Um, but yeah, they're, they're a wonderful organization. They do awesome work, both in, in, in obviously awareness is there is the key for climate change. And they do a lot of advocacy, both in D.C. and at the state level, so at the federal and the state level. Um, and they do a lot in terms of education around what people, the average American or the average person, because they're now going global, can do to kind of help. And, and you know, everyone says, oh, I, you know, I'm against climate change and I'm for the, the world and the environment. But what does that really mean? What are they really doing on a day-to-day basis to really back up that statement? Not much. And that's right. fine because where, where do you start? So they're just a group that I have gotten to know really, really well and have, have really uh, spent a lot of time with the leadership of the, of the organization. And really, um, and I really do love them. They're, they're an amazing group that I would, I would encourage people to, to do a little research on them. And, and if you do have any semblance of, of a soft spot in your heart for the environment, which I hope many people do, um, you know, they, they're doing great things from, from an advocacy perspective. And, and I think they're going to start to lead the charge uh, here in the States and also globally. They're, they're opening up some, some, some global uh, offices to start to, um, to really kind of move the needle. And the other well, on is, that, um, on that topic real quick, before you jump oh, over uh, yep. from a climate change perspective, I, I was listening to Joe Rogan yesterday, episode 1259 with David Wallace Wells the deputy 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 editor and uh, climate com- columnist of the New York Magazine. Uh, listen to that episode. I will link to it in the show notes. Um, it's we we need, everybody needs to be active in this. And I know it's such a political, divisive conversation on climate change, but there are things that we can do on a local level that can make a huge difference. And I think that we all need to be. It, become a little bit more educated on it because the next, how we act in the next 30 years uh, will drastically uh, alter the course of what this world's going to be like for our kids and our, our kids, kids and, and so on. And I, one little fact that was, uh, I found really interesting is just simply, this <laughs> is totally random, but, but just by simply uh, if we can feed seaweed to cattle, it drastically reduces emissions, uh, methane uh, emissions. Um, the, he talks about that on the podcast. I found that really interesting. And I'm thinking to myself, first of all, what else can we do with seaweed? And how can we advocate for this? Because who, get, who hurts by us feeding cattle seaweed? Uh, everybody still gets to eat their meat, but it's just safer for the environment. Anyway, there's a lot of, a lot of little gems like that in that podcast. And, uh, Save our winters. Is it save our winters? Protect our winters. Protect our winters. Uh, look them up and, and see how you can get involved. And the, the second uh, organization you were about to talk about before I cut you off was? Uh, yeah, and, and to go further on that, I mean, there's, there's a number of, of, of fights for every generation. I think this is probably our generation's biggest fight is going to be to kind of reverse what we've already done to, to injure the climate and to start to rectify and at least put the pieces in place in terms of what it means to kind of help it going forward. Uh, the second one would be, would be SEAL Future Fund. Uh, so I, I serve on the advisory board, and, you know, you may ask yourself, why is an Army Ranger sitting on the advisory board of a, of a SEAL organization? Um, you know, to me, you know, it's obviously labeled the SEAL Future Fund, and they obviously primarily help SEALs, but they're also agnostic in their approach. So if an Army Ranger reaches out to them and says, hey, I want some help, they are – uh, they are 
certainly not discriminatory in terms of who they help. Um, they just have been tailored towards the special operations community. Um, but I was put in touch with them, as I mentioned earlier, I started the military internship at Blackstone. So, you know, in that effort was was put in touch with a lot of different veteran organizations. And and one, obviously, very near and dear to my heart is, is, a, is a number of the ones that I'm associated with. The Steel Future Fund is one that, you know, they assist in how do we transition veterans from the military to the civilian sector in the most effective and efficient way possible and also set them up for success. Don't just transition them, but also put them in a position to succeed. Um, so, so basically, they do they're from, doing exactly what the athlete book is doing for athletes, uh, it, it looks like. And their website the is words out of awesome. My yeah. SealFutureFund.org. Yeah. The athlete book is definitely going to be reaching out and finding ways to partner with them. You know, the, the thing that I also thought about is, like, you know, so many of uh, people that go into the Navy or the Army, like yourself, also were uh, college athletes, right? So yep. even if, if we partner uh, amongst the subgroup there, um, but I would love, uh, <clears throat> if anything, from a support perspective, our, our uh, network of clients, uh, Amazon, Under Armour, Yelp, J.P. Morgan Chase, um, you know, I'd love to parlay those over to, to have those opportunities be shared uh, with, with SEAL Future Fund as well. So hopefully uh, you're able to put me in touch and uh, take a look if you're listening to the SEAL, SEAL S-E-A-L-F-U-T-U-R Fund, F-U-N-D dot org, SEALFutureFund.org. Awesome website, really great cause, and uh, obviously one that I can resonate with. Big time. Thank you very much, Ryan. Yeah, Chris, this has been great. I hope that you're a frequent guest on Well Played. Um, I, I look forward to, um, I, I feel like the next time that we talk on air, it's talking about your new venture. And if there are companies that tr- want to try to get a last minute, uh, try just a Hail Mary to get you into their organization, uh, how can they contact you? Uh, uh, I would, you know, LinkedIn is an easy way. Obviously you already touched on that, that, that address, uh, Christopher Woods or, uh, email address is, uh, Chris, C-H-R-I-S dot Woods, W-O-O-D-S one six at gmail.com. Like I said, I have a feeling you're, you're already going to be scooped up. I know you're having a lot of exciting conversations, but I know you're also always willing to listen to opportunity, especially if it makes a uh, positive impact on society and, uh, you're the man. I love it. I love it. I love hanging out with you. I'm so happy and grateful that you're a good friend of mine. And uh, I I thank you for all of the advice and support that you've given the athlete book uh, from an advisement perspective and uh, carry on my friend. Any, any last parting words? Yeah, actually I do. One, thank you very much for having me, Ryan. This is, this has been great. And you know, anything we can do to continue to help, like I said, pay it forward and help individuals as they, as they transition and any, and any semblance of transition, um, you know, that's obviously what we're here for. And, you know, the biggest thing that I would touch on is, you know, and it may sound cliche, but, but be an athlete. You know, when I, when I look at hiring people and, and, I, and people are like, what are you looking for? I often say I'm looking for an athlete. I don't mean that in the literal sense, like, did you actually play a sport, even though I am obviously partial to those that play sports for obvious reasons. Being an athlete, in my mind, is being someone who is adaptable to change and adaptable to the environment that they are put in. Being able to wear many hats and, and, and succeed in, in, in the multitasking effort is really, really pivotal in the business world these days. 
very, very rarely do you take a job and does that job actually follow the exact job description that you signed up for. So the more adaptable and the more athletic you can be from a figurative sense, the better off you're going to be in any environment, whether that be in finance, in the military, at a startup. I mean, you name it. You know, being an athlete means more than 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 what it sounds like. So, so that would be my my parting advice is to is to don't limit yourself and always be be the perennial learner and be a student of of whatever it is you're doing because it's always gonna it's always gonna bode well for you the more you learn and the more you prosper and the more you grow as an individual. I love that. And here, athlete, here's listen to this athlete's interview pro tip right here. What Chris just said is when he's looking to hire. He wants, he's looking for an athlete in the sense of adaptable to change and can juggle multiple tasks. So you're going to get ready for an interview. Think about your adaptable to change story, your athlete story, something that has happened to you that it illustrates how you are able to adapt to change. That's something that you're going to want to talk about in an interview. Same goes for how you've juggled multiple tasks. You may not have a full body of experience, but what you can work on now is being able to articulate how you've had those experiences in an interview format. That's something that you can figure out now. And I have a a worksheet template if you join our uh, Facebook Messenger that you can have for free that will give you a guideline uh, template on, on how to fill this out so that you can start thinking about your interview story. So that's awesome advice, Chris, and uh, I echo it. And um, that's all we, we have here. So go to theathletebook.com. Check out our podcast on Facebook, Well Played. Just put that into the search. Sync into our messenger, and you will be synced in for, uh, for life, I think. More conversations like this. Stay away from the large rattlesnakes, and make sure when you're jumping out of the plane that the guy next to you is doing it right but you don't hit the ground at 100 miles per hour. And also, when you're taking the private chopper to meet the president, well, you have to get on the jet first. Be gracious. Remember your manners, okay? You don't want to embarrass yourself in front of the president. So this has been Well Played with Christopher Woods. Thank you for listening. We will talk to you soon.